0: Turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Really good to have Carla and Pat back. We missed you. But also thankful for your willingness to serve our brothers and sisters in Gordon for the last couple weeks. Exodus 32, let's go ahead and Read, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, And Aaron made a proclamation and said, "'Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord.' And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, "'Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them.' They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Father, We come to you now with, uh, having read this passage, just with a sober recognition of how serious it is to try to transform you into the image of our desires, to commit idolatry, to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And Father, we're, to be honest, we've all done it. We've all, in our hearts, fashioned an idol. And Lord, we, we come before you needing forgiveness. So Father, we pray that you would do that and that you would send your Spirit to uh, cleanse us and that you would cause us today to walk forward in obedience and in the recognition of the fact that it's so much better to spend even just one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd open up your word to us today and cause us to, to draw closer to you. Lord, we continue to lift up those in our congregation who are dealing with uh, difficult illness. Uh, there are many, uh, too many to, to list, and so we ask that you would uh, bless them with uh, your peace and your uh, a sense of your presence, and, uh, and we pray that you would heal them. Uh, we pray for Pastor Guy as he uh, ministers in the Middle East right now. I pray that you would give him your anointing as he preaches and as he ministers throughout the week, and that you would bring much fruit. And then, Father, we remember uh, our brothers and sisters across the city of Wells and this region. We think especially of Iglesia Templo Bautista in southwest Wells. I ask that you would uh, pour out your blessing on that congregation and cause them to, uh, to just experience your powerful presence and fruitfulness in your mission. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, after I preach this message, I want to share something that I think is very exciting with you all, and so if I forget to do that, as sometimes I do after I preach, uh, please someone throw something at me, okay? Uh, don't let me forget to, to share what I have to share. Nearly 160 years ago, uh, an amateur archaeologist by the name of Paul Hérault was excavating a small cave opening in central France when he made a very important discovery. In that cave, he found what, was, what would come to be known as a Venus figurine, a prehistoric statuette depicting a woman's body carved out of a mammoth's tusk. Since that time in 1864, over 200 of these figurines have been unearthed from archaeological sites all across Europe and Asia. All of them extremely ancient. Some paleontologists actually estimate that the oldest of them is over 40,000 years old. That's what they think. And of course, when they find these things, there's always a little bit of speculation about the nature and the purpose of the item. It's not like there's this manual there that says this is how you use this. Uh, And they kick around five or six different educated guesses uh, from time to time about what the use happens to be. But by and large, most experts agree that these mysterious, remarkably similar statues were used in the the liturgy of some kind of fertility cult. In other words, they are in fact idols. Now obviously, I'm not qualified to, to comment on the accuracy of That assessment or their age or anything like that, but it strikes me as tragically instructive that from the very earliest times, long before the Sumerian scribes were making marks on their clay tablets in cuneiform, long before the ancient Egyptians were carving hieroglyphics into the limestone, even before the invention of the wheel, human beings have been bowing down to idols. In a passage that would later become famous among students of theology, John Calvin offers the following explanation of the phenomenon of idolatry. He says, man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. To these evils, a new wickedness joins itself that man tries to express in his work the sort of God he has inwardly conceived. Therefore, the mind begets the idol, the hand gives it birth. Daily experience teaches that flesh is always uneasy until it has obtained some figment like itself in which it may fondly find solace as in an image of God. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Indeed. And though it may be tempting for us as modern people living in the West to surmise that we are exempt from this sort of thing, the truth is that we are little different by nature than our ancient ancestors. What today's passage illustrates and the entire record of Scripture bears out is that no matter what time or place or people, all human beings are constantly assailed by the threat of idolatry to their everlasting harm and that it's even possible for God's people to be seduced, to a point, by an idol. Today's passage is part of a a larger section, takes up all of chapters 32 through 34, and we're not going to get through all of that today. The way that God acts towards his people after they shatter the covenant is actually going to take us to the climax, to the absolute summit of the book of Exodus, and we're going to get to that next week. But... Before we ascend to that rich truth, we've got to go down with the Israelites in chapter 32 where they take the covenant they have just agreed to uphold and they trample it underfoot. And we're left asking after all God has done to show himself strong in their behalf, after this dazzling display of a mighty power and and thunder and lightning and, and the booming voice giving the law, after he clarifies exactly how he expects them to live, How could this happen? How is it that the children of Israel could bow down to an idol after that? And furthermore, what now? So in order to answer both of these questions at once, I'm going to make three claims about idolatry that that demonstrate the relevance of a passage like this one to modern people living in the United States in the 21st century today. So I'll go ahead and give you those three claims, and then we're going to break them down one by one. Claim number one, idolatry lies at the root of all sin. Idolatry lies at the root of all sin. Secondly, idolatry is deadly. Idolatry is deadly. And then finally, idolatry leaves us in need of God's grace. So consider with me in the first place that idolatry lies at the root of all Sin. Now, I can't stress this enough, but uh, one of the keys to understanding the book of Exodus is to remember that uh, what, what God has been doing among the children of Israel in the book of Exodus is sort of a, 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 a recapit- recapitulation, uh, so to speak, uh, a recap of what took place in the book of Genesis. Uh, Mark Twain is purported to have said, History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And that is so true in the book of Exodus as well. Israel's experience sort of rhymes with the earliest moments in human history as well as the experience of Noah and the flood. So God brought the world into existence by causing the dry land to rise up out of the sea in Genesis chapter 1. In the same way, years later, he takes creation back by covering the earth with a flood and saving just the family of Noah. Something similar happens in the book of Exodus where he takes the children of Israel through judgment, through the Red Sea, and then destroys the armies of Pharaoh in that sea. God in the book of Genesis places the man and the woman in a garden sanctuary that they're commanded to cultivate, and that way God can have fellowship with them in the cool of the day. And in the same way, God is telling Moses that the children of Israel must build him a sanctuary where he'll meet with them in keeping with the covenant. Adam and Eve, our first parents, are tested with the fruit in the middle of the garden, and they're seduced by the serpent and they fall into sin and a wedge is driven between them and their creator. And now the children of Israel are walking the exact same path in Exodus 32 that Adam and Eve walked in Genesis chapter 3. The details are different, but the broad strokes are the same. Aaron, as their covenant representative, fails to lead the people in faith, but succumbs to the seduction of idolatry. And then when confronted about it, just like Adam, you read through chapter 32, he's just like Adam. He makes excuses and tries to shift the blame onto somebody else. History is, it's not repeating itself, but it certainly rhymes. Now, why am I laboring to to point these similarities out? It's because, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, these things took place as examples for us. Uh, that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, the reason why the creation narrative in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 rhymes with the flood narrative a few chapters later, and then with the book of Exodus, is because it's not because Moses just thought it would be cool to point out some similarities and and satisfy our curiosity. No, the reason why these parallels are in place is because the experience of Adam and Eve, the experience of Noah and his family, and the experience of the children of Israel gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai are examples for what we ourselves are going to face down to this very day. They're examples for us. All that to say We learn a little bit more about the nature of sin and salvation from each one of these narratives. You go to Genesis chapter 3, and you learn, for example, that Satan often takes God's words and twists them rather than just making something up new, just just like today. He does the same thing today. And here in Exodus 32, we learn some lessons as well. We have this vivid, tangible, easy-to-imagine account of what takes place so subtly In the invisible corners of each of our hearts. So, what we see in living color here in Exodus 32 is actually an exposure and an explanation of what is so mysterious to us in our own experience. So, notice the way that idolatry quickly takes shape among the children of Israel in the first six verses. Just days before, God had thundered the words of his covenant and the people trembled in awe. And now that experience is beginning to fade almost completely away. Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai. He's receiving the instructions that we read about in the previous seven chapters. And the people, unsure when or if he is going to come back down, begin to feel a little antsy. You see, idolatry... This is our first lesson. It begins with something that's neither good nor bad. It's just something that's part of being a human being, and that's this. There's a capacity in our hearts to perceive that there's more. That the things that we are seeing with our physical eyes are, are, are not all that exist. The writer to Ecclesi- of Ecclesiastes put it like this. He's put eternity in our hearts. In other words, each and every person in the world senses that there is more to life than just our physical bodies and our animal instincts. There is transcendence, there's purpose, there's design inherent in all things. That means that whether you are a Christian or not, I know something about you. I know that you sense, if you're honest, that you are more than just a collection of chemicals. Paul says that what may be known about God is clearly seen in the things that he has made. And so what's, what's so remarkable about this in the modern era, so many great minds have taken it upon themselves to strip away what is transcendent or essential about humanity and the nature of reality, and they just simply can't succeed. Everybody knows it's not true. So I don't care if you believe that the universe was formed billions of years ago as a result of the Big Bang or if the world in which we're living is just one of many infinite possibilities in the multiverse or whatever it is that you believe. You simply can't explain the existence of yourself or anybody else unless there's something more to the story than just the impersonal chance mechanisms of physics and chemistry. You know it. And the Israelites know this along with everybody else, but here's the problem. They take that knowledge and they begin to imagine that this transcendence, this transcendent being is a thing that they can project outwards onto the world from their own imaginations. In other words, apart from God's revelation of himself, we can't know anything about him and when we try to fill in the gaps, The only way that we can do that is to uh, sort of project our desires, our inclinations, our perceptions onto this so-called deity. So an idol is really just an outward manifestation of the affections of the heart. In other words, idolatry happens when we answer our, our longing for the divine with a projection of our own heart's inclinations. I know there's more to life. I'm going to shape that divine image in the image of my own desires. And if you recognize that this is what's going on, then you can see that this golden calf is actually, from that perspective, if you leave aside God's revelation, it's really the perfect idol. I mean, think about this. Uh, It's actually a word, the, the, the word calf, it's actually a word that could be used for any kind of, domesticated male cattle up to three years old. Uh, David reminded me this week that many of you uh, raise cattle and you know all about them and you have like 20 different words for the different kinds of cattle and, uh, and I don't have that knowledge and so I should tread carefully, so please bear with me. <laughs> but keeping in, that in mind, I mean, this is just kind of a generic word, but it can be any kind of male cattle up to three years old. And so what we're talking about is really something like a young bull or an ox. And some of you have spent a lot of time around these creatures, so you take into account the fact that the Israelites use them a little bit differently than we do today. You can understand why from the perspective of rebellious humanity, this is just a perfect God. I mean, think about what a young bull would have represented to an Israelite who grew up as a slave in the, in the fertile Nile Valley. Certainly they were attracted to the idea because they were drawn to this animal's strength. I mean, the the ancient world was a terrifying world. There were lots of dangers. You want your God to be a strong God. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because they didn't choose the lion or the crocodile or anything like that. They chose the boring ox. And why? Because they want a strong God that they can tell what to do. Right? Right? I have no idea how to work a yoke of oxen, but there are some people who can get a team of oxen to pull some very heavy equipment and, and complete some difficult tasks that no human being would otherwise be capable of doing. So they want, this, they want a strong God that will do what they tell it to do. And they don't mind giving him some of the things that he might want along, along the way as long as he recognizes who is really in charge. But that's not all. This is an animal who is always around, but who will generally leave you alone unless you need him for something. Sure, he has some demands, right? He can get a little ornery or moody, of course, but as a God, how nice to be able to leave him in the barn or the stable or out in the pasture and sort of let him do his thing until you need him to pull a wagon or a plow. In other words, the children of Israel, they don't just want a strong God that they can tell what to do. They want a convenient God that they can take or leave as necessary. Thirdly, and you might not know this, but this golden calf was the kind of thing that you might see here and there in Egypt or Mesopotamia. Uh, It was a very common image found in, in several different places in the ancient world. So in other words, what the Israelites wanted, they didn't invent this sort of thing. They were copying off their neighbors because they didn't just want a strong God that they could tell what to do or a convenient God that they could take or leave as necessary, they also wanted a normal God that would make sense to the nations around them. You see, giving themselves to I Am would distinguish them from everybody else. It would make them feel different. And the Israelites, they must have felt so exposed, so pressured, so vulnerable being the only ones. So the pressure was strong for them to conflate the God who had revealed himself with the gods of the nations around them in order that they could sort of hedge their bets. Like if God God revealed himself on the mountain and we heard all these wonderful things, but in case that's not true, we're going to mix that with the gods of the nations just so we can make sure that everybody's satisfied and we'll, we'll hedge our bets. A strong God that they could tell what to do. A convenient God that they could take or leave at whim a normal God that would make sense to their neighbors. Do you see what this reveals about the hearts of the children of Israel? It's it's not really about the statue, is it? It's about what that statue reveals. Idolatry occurs when I recognize that there's more to life than the things that I can see, but then I fill in the blanks of that recognition with a projection of what my heart desires. The mind begets the idol, the hand gives it birth. And you can also see why I might say that idolatry lies at the root of all sin. Because when we choose to sin, we are saying, God, I don't want you. I want a God that matches me. I want a God that puts me at the center. I I, I want a God who puts a lot of money in my pocket. A God who lets me pursue whatever kind of pleasure my heart desires. A God who is convenient. A God who makes me fit in with everybody else. I know that there's more to life than just existing, but what you reveal about yourself and your word doesn't work for me. I'm going to construct a God fashioned in the image of my heart's desires, and I'm okay with that God being worshipped and part of my little pantheon as long as I'm at the top of it. Friends, every sin starts here. This is why the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14 calls out the elders of Israel for bowing down to idols in their heart. They, they didn't have a physical statue, but they were still idolaters because they chose to make a god out of something that God had made. This is why the apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.5 and Ephesians 5.5, 5, that greed amounts to idolatry. Because while people living in Colossae and Ephesus didn't bow down to their gold coins, they had set up money and possessions as the thing that made life meaningful. This is why he warns the urbane Corinthians who believed that the statues in the local idol temple were nothing. That they still must flee idolatry because the food that they were consuming had become more important to them than the brothers and sisters in their own church. This is why John, after a letter describing the ways in which we might know that we have eternal life, leaves us with one final warning, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Yes, it's true, we live in a culture that retains the the vestiges of Judeo-Christian heritage, I understand that. Yes, it's true that we live in a post-enlightenment modern world where it's rare to find someone bowing to a statue, but no matter what is going on in the culture around us, the tendency that every human being has is to construct in our hearts a God who matches up to our own desires rather than to bow the knee to the God who is there. And that is a great problem because notice with me, not only that idolatry lies at the root of all types of sin, but secondly, idolatry is deadly. Idolatry is deadly. So make no mistake, this passage occupies such a pivotal place in the canon of Scripture for a reason. It is an everlasting warning to us that we must be vigilant not to succumb to the seductions of idolatry. And, And I see in this passage basically two reasons why idolatry is so deadly. First of all, notice that it is deadly because it is so deceptive. It's deadly because it's so deceptive. Did you notice the the parallels between what Aaron commands the children of Israel to do in the first six verses and what God had told Moses on top of the mountain, or or rather what he was telling him on top of the mountain at that very same time. They parallel each other uh, almost exactly. Aaron says, hey, everybody, give me the gold rings that you have. Sounds almost like, What God had told Moses in chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Those gold rings were supposed to be given in the service of the true worship of the living God at the tabernacle. Aaron says, let's make a feast to the Lord. Sounds almost exactly like what God had told Moses in chapters 27 and 31. God was planning a feast for his people, but they would rather have the cheap imitation. We're told that they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. and That sounds almost exactly like what God described to Moses in chapter 29. Idolatry often masquerades as real worship. It's a counterfeit, which means it's going to try to pass as the real thing. So how often do we wrap our idolatry in religious garb, in these biblically sounding excuses, but it's still at its core idolatry? Have you noticed that we do this quite often? God told me to take this job, we say. As if to say, don't criticize my decision. God told me to take the job. When really, in our heart, we know we're just after the money. Man, I love this worship music. I could just feel the spirit moving. And really, what's really going on, if we're honest to ourselves, is we just feel better. We like the music, we just start something that we prefer. Now, I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm not trying to accuse everyone in here of lying every time they say that God led them to do something or that they had some impression from the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that at all. My point is that it is possible to maintain the trappings of a real relationship with God, and yet it's nothing more than idolatry because what do idols do? They masquerade as real worship, and so we have to be discerning to be able to tell Hey, what's going on really in my heart? There's there's another reason why idolatry is so deceptive. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 8-10. through In these chapters, he's shepherding the Corinthian believers in the matter of eating meat that's been offered in an idol's temple. And he says, go ahead and eat what you buy at the market, even though you don't know whether it came from an idol temple or somewhere else, but you... But don't sit in the idol temple at a, at a festival in celebration of one of these idols. And why? Because above and behind that lifeless idol stands a spiritual evil so sinister that it will ensnare you and drag you away from the Savior and bring a, a whole bunch of others with you. In other words, he says what the, uh, what, what the pagans are worshiping when they worship an idol is, is none other than a demon demon. And so he says, idolatry is deceptive it's because it's demonic. We have a spiritual enemy who conv- commands an army of spiritual powers. Their, their goal is to destroy the image of God in human beings, and they are always going to use the lie a fake worship, idolatry, in order to get what they want. Idolatry is dangerous because it's so deceptive. In the third place, because it's shape shifting. In other words, the powers of hell do not care if your idol is a golden calf or a wooden totem, a car in the driveway, a kid in the cradle. They don't mind either way. They don't mind if it's something you can touch or see or whether you can nurse it only in the secret places of your heart. The important thing is that you're off of the worship of the one true God. And idolatry has the ability to sort of shift shapes and look like normal worship. It's easy to spot the idols of of other people, especially in other cultures. But what is infinitely more important is for you to be able to identify and mortify the idols in yourself. Idolatry is dangerous because it's so deceptive. But notice with me as well that idolatry is dangerous because it's so abominable. Uh, notice God's immediate reaction to the golden calf of verses 9 through 10. He says, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them. God is not playing around with idolatry. It's an abomination to him. Throughout Scripture, the way that idolatry is described is anything but G-rated. It's vivid. It's arresting. It's, it's like spiritual adultery. God can't stand it, and for good reason. I mean, the whole point of why we exist is for the worship of the one true God. He made us so that he might share himself with us, but then we turn around and we say, no, thank you, I'm going to make my own God? It's an abomination. Like, who do we think we are? That kind of rebellion is, is, is a stench to a righteous and infinitely holy God. You put yourself in a position to slander and oppose the almighty God of all the earth. I mean, how do you think that's going to go? Yes, idolatry is deadly. Friends, listen to me. Kids, listen to me. What kind of a person would I be if I didn't warn you about something that's deadly? Yes, we need to talk about the goodness of God and the kindness of God and how much better it is to walk with God and know God than it is to go after the temporary pleasures of sin. They're going to lead you to destruction. Yes, we want, to, we want you to see that you're welcome in God's church and feel that this is a place that you could call home. But you need to know that entering into a relationship with God is not a matter of just coming to like a fork in the road and you choose this path instead of that path. No, there's something lurking in your heart that stands in the way of you having a right relationship with God, and that's got to be dealt with. You see, every single one of us has bowed down to an idol, and you need to know that there's something sinister and enslaving in your life that we have to make right in order to have a relationship with a holy God. And friends, this is why Jesus came, not just preaching the good news, but dying for sinners, Because each and every one of us have shown with decision after decision that we don't want the God who reveals himself in the Bible, but a counterfeit. That that we don't want to be servants of the king. We want to be the sovereign deity in a pantheon of little gods. We've turned up our noses toward the God who made us and we've said no to the very person who gave us the air that we're breathing and until you recognize the deadly wickedness of that idolatry and you beg for forgiveness and you call out to God and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, then you cannot have a relationship with God. You can't. Idolatry is at the root of all sin and it is deadly. Don't mess with it. But in the third place, notice with me that idolatry leaves us in need of God's grace. Idolatry leaves us in need of God's grace. Weeks earlier, all the Israelites together twice told God in a solemn oath that they were going to obey everything he told them to do in the covenant and thereby earn their spot as his treasured possession. And now, any hope of that is absolutely and irreparably shattered. If they're going to move forward, if they're going to avoid absolute annihilation, then it is only going to be on the basis of something outside of the covenant arrangement that is described in the book of Exodus. So, notice how Moses recognizes this immediately in verse 13 when he compassionately pleads on behalf of the nation. He says, God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He says, God, remember the promise you made in your grace before there ever even was a Sinai covenant based on works. Remember your promises. Remember your mercies. Remember your kindness. See, what Moses recognizes is that the idolatry of the people leaves them without a leg to stand on altogether. and There's no way that they can earn a place as God's treasure. But there's still hope, not because of who they are, but because of who God is. Idolatry leaves us in a place where we need God's grace. And before we conclude, I just want you to notice three things about this grace, and we're going to expand on that grace next week when we get into chapters 33 and 34. But first of all, notice that it is a mediated grace. It is a mediated grace. Uh, Moses, of course, puts himself in the crosshairs and pleads on behalf of the children of Israel. And he says, God, please you know, save these people. Don't, don't allow your judgment to fall on them. I'm going to mediate for them. I'm going to plead for them. And in this way, Moses is a type, a shadow of a greater mediator, Jesus Christ, who takes the place of sinners and pleads for them before his Father's throne. You you have earned the judgment of God, but because of the mediator, Jesus Christ, that we sang about earlier in the service, you can experience God's grace. It is a mediated grace. Second of all, notice that it is a mollifying grace. In other words, God's, God's judgment doesn't immediately fall. He patiently delays. It will fall, but because of his grace, he waits. Uh, he, he's waited and he's waited and he's waited. Some of us are asking, God, why, are you, why have you waited so long? I want justice. I want righteousness. I want the new creation. I, I want you to come and bring all things to their good end. And the apostle Peter tells us it's because of his long suffering towards us. He's giving us another chance. He's waiting, but he will not wait forever. Thirdly, this grace is a mortifying grace. Moses commands the Levites to strap on a sword later in the chapter and purge away the idolaters from the midst of the people. This is God's grace, believe it or not. God's grace protects the people, but it purges the instigators who threaten to corrupt everyone And in that day, 3,000 idolaters who had collaborated with demons are plunged into eternity. God's grace is a mortifying grace. Friend, the grace of God toward the idolatrous is at work today. It's a mediated grace through Jesus Christ. Have you come to Christ today? It's a mollifying grace. Have you seen his patience with you or have you been presumptuous? And it's a mortifying grace Like, there's hope for each and every believer in Jesus Christ that what he has begun in you, he will complete. And he asks us each to put to death in our bodies the idols that we've set up and we've nursed and nurtured. Every pulse of your heart throbbing in allegiance to an idol must be utterly cut off. So let us not lose heart, but always be vigilant to kill sin. Friends, would you... Pray with me and let's ask the Lord together to remove the idols from our lives. God, we, uh, we need you to search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us. Expose the idols that we're bowing down to. Expose the idols that seduce us, that tempt us, that threaten to draw us away from the worship of the one true God, whether it be our trust in money and possessions, a life dominating sin, a relationship, maybe another worldview or religion. God, would you purge these things away so that we might be faithful to you and pleasing to you? in your sight. And God, if there are any here today who do not have a relationship with you through the mediator, Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day that they cry out to you for forgiveness. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.